Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors. Brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Great pleasure to welcome everyone to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. We have a great conversation ahead, and Elliot, I'll ask you to get us started. All right. Thank you, John. So um, today I want to talk about a specific chapter from the book Setting the Table by Danny Meyer. Uh, Many of you might know who Danny Meyer is because he's got many fantastic restaurants in New York City, Manhattan in particular, but also Shake Shack, which is a global phenomenon. Uh, You know, I absolutely love those burgers and (laughs) making me a little hungry here this morning thinking about it. But anyway, you know, here's the point. Um, I also want to thank, actually, Palmetto Capital. He's the one who sent me this book and encouraged me to read it. Um, I think it's about way more than just Danny Meyer's restaurant. And obviously, it was intended to be. Um, The subtitle is The Transforming Power of Hospitality and Business. So, you know, he really wanted to speak kind of transcendentally about business in general, especially hospitality. But I think there's some good lessons for us in investment. Um, So I would strongly recommend reading the book. Uh, Danny Meyer's concept is called Enlightened Hospitality. But, you know, it's this one chapter called Constant Gentle Pressure, which I just love the title. It really resonates with with me. Uh, It stood out. And to me, it was like the meat of the book. So, you know, first off, like high level, I think it's about having a growth mindset and pushing things forward constantly at all times, but gently. Um, And in some ways, I really think it's like the exact opposite of the move fast and break things we hear about from Silicon Valley. Because, you know, in most contexts, breaking things is not ideal. And when you break things, especially for some of your stakeholders, there are very real consequences to doing this. And so, you know, I I don't love this idea of constant, uh, of of, uh, move fast and break things. I think it's, you know, maybe contextually relevant to one specific company or a couple at a single point in time. But in general, you know, in most things where you're really working with customers on an everyday basis, constant gentle pressure as your growth mindset where you want to get better at everything you do um, <clears throat> without breaking things. You know, I, to me, that's kind of a better, higher ideal. Um, so, you know, the chapter starts with this idea of know your center. And to me, what that means is have a purpose, have a mission, know your essence, know who you are. That's your foundation. And when you're applying this constant, gentle pressure, you never leave this foundation. It's, it's like your highest calling, right? It's your first principle. Um, and so, you know, everything you do is built upon that. And I think that's true of being an investor, of having an investment strategy, of building an investment firm. Um, you have to define yourself. You have to know who you are. You have to know what you stand for, like which ideals, which principles, which kinds of investments you will make and which, you know, everything else that you absolutely won't do, will not do, never do. Um, you know, he talks about being imaginative in solving problems. This fact that everyone, every business, everything you do has problems, Right. I think there's too much uh, that we talk about in business analysis in general that doesn't talk about the ethos and the strategies and the paths you take when problems arise, about when you're an investor for the long term, what you do when, you know, right now, or maybe not even right now, because we're, we're a week into what is the opposite of this. But at times, you know, you think and look and feel like everything's going up and to the right, but there are speed bumps, there are hiccups, there's like tough times along the way. 
and you know how you handle them, how you deal with them, how you adapt to the challenges is extremely important for who you are, what you are, and how you do as a business. Um, this concept of he talks about leadership a lot in this chapter. You know, he mentions it's a two-way dialogue. You have to compromise. You have to have a willingness to share power. You know, this is something I've noticed in great businesses and a lot of my favorite businesses. And I think it's something that you know Buffett talks about a lot too. In in part of the beauty of the Berkshire model, you know, you have to decentralize. You have to have people you're you're willing to delegate to. Those people have to be capable of making extremely important decisions, and they have to have a trust that, um, you know, you as their leader will kind of take some of the responsibility, some of the blame for when things don't go well, but also they're empowered to do well. Um, I think empowering people is one of the key ingredients behind businesses that I truly love versus those that don't. I think, you know, especially in certain hedge funds, I've seen a model where you want to like chew up and spit people out after two years to a business program and they don't necessarily learn. They don't feel empowered along the way. Like I believe deeply in empowering people. So yeah, Danny Meyer gives his specific lessons on hiring managers. He talks about looking for people with infectious attitudes, self-awareness that strive toward long-term success, not short-term success, feed people with a sense of abundance. Um, Don't make people feel like, you know, they have to be too tight on everything. It doesn't mean don't be conscious of budget and don't, you know, be smart about what you do and don't spend on, but, you know, make people feel like there's an environment <clears throat> where they take part in the success too, where it's shared and it doesn't just all go to the owners. Um, he calls his employees his single most important stakeholders above and beyond his investors and his customers. Um, and there's this sense, you know, I don't hear this very often, though there are a few special companies like Costco's one that stands out in this sense. Um, when your employees truly feel comfortable, confident, and content, like you have an environment where your customers and your investors stand to disproportionately benefit. Um, and I think that's an interesting kind of different mentality than we often hear. He talks about build trust, not fear, collaborate and empower. Um, so recently I was engaged in a thread uh, with Paul Enright on Twitter. He comes out of uh, the long, short hedge fund world. And I think he had some great stuff to share. Um, I started this kind of uh, one tweet of uh, generalists for specialists. And, you know, I had my generalist manifesto in one of the early podcasts here. Um, but, you know, deeper, deeper down in this thread, I gave a few nuggets on how I think about some of these things and how I like to uh, approach this. I made my first hire in March of 20, uh, geez, 2018. It feels like it was a lot more recent than, no, sorry, 2019. So two years ago, two years of having someone working for me for the first time. And, you know, I wanted to approach it in a very specific way. And I think it kind of fits this framework. You know, one of the first things I wanted to do was hire for a skill set to round out my own and my firm's weaknesses. So I targeted uh, people, someone who had capabilities that I knew were not my strengths. Um, And then what I wanted to do is I wanted to make sure the person was empowered, wanted them to feel like they had ownership uh, in mentality. I wanted them to know that they shared in success, that they had an opportunity to explore their own interests and improve their uh, sense of purpose. But I also, you know, my job as a manager was to kind of identify the analyst's strongest skill, identify their weakest skill, empower them in their strongest area, but teach to their weakness. And, you know, I think that's hopefully where coming from a non Wall Street mentality, not having grown up in a firm. Uh, that had uh, its own processes, I could bring a different mindset to our industry. And I thought it was 
you know, kind of a little, I, I feel, I hope, I aspire to it being kind of like how Danny Meyer thinks about these things. So a lot there. I'd love to hear what you guys think, how it resonates with you in both the invest, investment world and in terms of businesses you look to um, and try to own for the long term. And um, yeah, open it up. Yeah, it's funny. Somebody gave me that book as well years ago. I don't know, it's at least three or four years ago now. And I haven't read it yet because I have so many books I want to read and it's been sitting there and I've had this very stupid judge a book by its cover attitude. Like, what do I have to learn by a book about hospitality and restaurants by this guy I've never heard of? So uh, shame on me. This will definitely bump it to the top of the list. It sounds really, really interesting. And I, I couldn't agree more. And there's a book along the same lines that it is uh, more, it pertains directly to investing. It's called There's Always Something to Do by Peter Kundal. And it's he's a Canadian fund manager who's unfortunately passed away years ago now. But, um, you know, he had a lot of the same ethos. And, you know, his, the, the mantra of constant gentle pressure was very similar to how he would conduct his research and, and you know, the, the attitudes you just described about staying within your foundations and, and empowering the people around you. That was very much how he ran um, his business. You know, he had a, an unbelievable track record for a long time and was very much a global investor. Um, you know, interestingly, one of the things he did was every year over the holidays, he would look at what the worst performing stock market in the world had been, the worst one or two maybe. And then in early in the new year, like in February, he would take a trip for two or three weeks and go visit that country and just figure out what was going on. So if the prior year, the worst performing stock market had been Vietnam, off he was to Vietnam. And he would then build this unbelievable network of people that he had empowered to do great things for him and with him. And and it was just a fascinating way of going about it. I don't think it would work for me, but it certainly was a effective and fascinating way for him to go about it. So that was one thing that jumps to mind. And, and I agree, there's a lot of other things here that are the hallmarks of great companies. I mean, decentralization kind of gets a bad rap, I think, these days because of Wells Fargo and GE. Um, and to me, that's really the wrong lesson to draw from Wells Fargo and GE. I mean, those were... A lot of things went wrong at those two companies, and it really didn't pertain to the fact that management gave too much authority away from headquarters, right? I mean, and so now bringing in a, a chief department assistant to the regional manager compliance guy is not going to help solve that problem, the, whatever the problems were, and there were plenty of them. So um, I totally agree. So, I mean, the, one of the things I'm always thinking about then in, in these situations, both for the people I work with and for the businesses I'm looking at is then how do you actually, what are the most effective structures? How do you formalize this process? How do you actually go about incentivizing people? How do you actually apply that constant gentle pressure? Um, how do you how do you set up mentorship opportunities and how do you actually act as a mentor and a mentee when the, when the time is right? I mean, I wish I had better answers for this in a, in a limited sample set. All I can tell you is I've gotten really, really lucky um, and just been fortunate enough to be hired by and hire some absolutely tremendous people where I've been exceptionally lucky to work with them. Um, you know, my, my partner, Kristen Herman, who runs pretty much all of our business, just does an absolutely phenomenal job. And I, I don't think I could have ever improved on it one bit. And I don't know what I did to deserve it other than be in the right place at the right time. So I think that's a huge part of it. And, and there's so everything. I mean, I... I will say one thing I've been extraordinarily cognizant of there is to just be 
you know, as, as the old phrase goes to, to delegate to almost the point of abdication. I mean, I, she does a great job and I just want to be as, you know, hands off as I possibly can in that world. It would just be totally counterproductive to be a micromanager. Um, so anyway, those, those are my quick thoughts. John, what about you? Yeah, I would say when I hear constant gentle pressure, it actually reminds me a little bit of the Japanese concept of Kaizen, which I think literally means change for better. It's often uh, described as a, as a philosophy of continuous improvement, and it kind of goes back to uh, the Japanese exporters and manufacturers of the 80s. They were always just looking for that next little improvement um, as opposed to, again, that philosophy of move fast and break things. In terms of you know, how this, and by the way, in terms of Kaizen, um, there's a great book called Matsushita Leadership by John Cotter. And it talks about um, Kensuke Matsushita, who basically is one of the fathers of, of that um, philosophy. You know, there's also, you can bring sports into this. Um, I, I've watched some um, documentaries on, on people like LeBron James, Michael Jordan, Tom Brady. Those guys always seem to be applying that constant pressure on their teammates. Um, I think Jordan was doing that to everyone on the Bulls because they understand they're not going to win championships if their teammates are not elevated uh, to another level. And so I think um, when it comes to managing people, it's really um, a lot of it is about elevating their own expectations of themselves, uh, because a lot of folks don't have this, you know, obsessive uh, mindset that uh, of, of this search for excellence or perfection. Um, a lot of folks are just content with doing a, a good, good enough job, let's say. So you got to always push them a little bit to expect more of themselves, kind of to be detail-oriented um, and, and to, to trust themselves more and to grow. Um, but you got to do it in a way that's not a fire drill kind of way. I mean, I remember when I was an analyst in investment banking, um, it wasn't gentle pressure. It was like, we got a new fire fire drill today and you got to crank out this uh, slide deck and whatnot. And that's not the kind of environment uh, I think we're talking about. Um, now, how does some of this apply to investing? I think we can also apply gentle pressure to ourselves to kind of push ourselves to always evaluate and reevaluate uh, our own investments, our own decisions, and, and to ask probing questions of ourselves. You know, was this really, did this work out really because my thesis was right or did I just get lucky? Um, and then also really understanding the companies enough that we would be comfortable buying the whole thing. I think that, you know, that goes back to pressuring ourselves a little bit to kind of go into the details and really make sure we understand the business and are not just buying into uh, some investment thesis that we read somewhere. I'm glad you mentioned that, John, just real quick to circle back, because that was the one thing I really took away from there's always something to do, which I should have mentioned in my first set of remarks, was that there is always something you can improve. There's always some progress you can make. So it's very common, I think, for certain investors, and I fall into this trap as a relatively concentrated investor, and, and I'm, I don't short anything anymore. So you know, it, it can look 
like if the market's doing something goofy or if I feel like the, the things that I can understand are all too expensive or whatever, it's very easy to sit there and tell yourself, well, like, well, you know, I'm just kind of sitting here waiting. And it's like, that, that's always the wrong answer. There's always something to do. And that was something that Peter Kundal was always very good at was finding these areas to, to apply that pressure to himself, not to push beyond his circle of confidence, not to go out and just do something for the sake of it. It's not about trading to create activity and busyness. It's not about, you know, doing something reckless and stupid when you're uninformed. It's about always pushing to say, okay, we, we've done this. We own this. What can we do better? And, and there has to be some other area of opportunity out there that's just waiting for me. And, and, you know, I used to talk about this, right? Turning over the most amount of rocks, right? And, and the world has changed, right? I mean, the, the kind of rocks he turned over back then when you'd go page by page in the Moody's manual or go hunting around for these little micro caps. I mean, that, that world has changed to a, to a certain degree, but the point certainly remains valid that there's always something to do out there and you just have to keep that, that pressure on yourself every day. Yeah, I love that title. I love that concept. I think it's like... <clears throat> Of the things that defines myself, when I was stuck in this world of wanting to get into finance, but having been in law and sports and not really having my angle, I was like, what's the one thing I can control that I can do? It's get spend a, at least a little bit of every day trying to get better, trying to improve a skill. And uh, what that's turned into is now what I do at the beginning of each year, I kind of pick one specific area that I feel like I want to enhance my capabilities in. And I spend at least a little bit of every day trying to build and or sharpen that specific skill. So every year, it's something a little different. This year for myself, my goal is to get better at data analysis and piecing together data that I could use in my investing process. And, you know, it takes some effort. I've had a look at Tableau more than I, you know, had ever in my life. And, you know, hopefully by the end of the year, I could say I've done something that meaningfully improves my abilities as an investor. You don't necessarily know off the bat whether that'll be the case or not. But just the fact that I set aside a little time each day, I think is something important to me. I think we've all said on this podcast, and I think it's part of why we like uh, doing this together. And I think all of us have this mentality, um, you know, always try to make yourself better tomorrow than you are today. Um, and that's constant gentle pressure, right? It's, you know, the compounding benefits that that accrues over a very long term is hard to see from today to tomorrow. But, you know, when you look back at yourself five years ago, you really see a huge difference. When you look back a decade, it's even more so. Um, John, I love that you mentioned, uh, I'm so glad you brought up Matsushita Leadership because you recommended that book to me before we started the, the podcast. And it, you know, really resonated, really meant a lot. And, uh, you know, I totally see the parallel right on. Um, and you, in this concept of decentralization and delegation um, in management, you know, I think that's truly, uh, before I really appreciated Jack Dorsey at Twitter, I had to learn about him at Square. And that's where it came about clearest, that what he's most into and what he most fundamentally believes in uh, is this concept of, you know, hiring, empowering, and delegating. Um, and you know, one of the things I've noticed is that when things go wrong in Jack Dorsey's company, he's never, he's never thrown someone under the bus. He said, you know, like, this is my fault. The buck stops here, right? Like the, I, I'm the one that takes accountability and, you know, that's real leadership. And I think it's rare. And I think only a few special companies truly pull it off exceptionally well. You know, when you think of the Kaizen companies, 
Danaher's culture, uh, DBS and all that, like uh, it definitely, you know, there, there are a few interesting examples. And I think the successes are, are truly standout in this world. Yeah, it's funny too, since you mentioned some tech titans, two things that, that jumped out for me is one, going back to your, your first comment, I remember, I'm pretty sure it was Bill Gates, it was attributed to Bill Gates, but this was a long, long time ago, but he said, people often way overestimate what they can get done this year and way underestimate what they can get done this decade, right? So even if he didn't say that, or even if it wasn't quite exactly those words, I think the point very much stands that, you know, you can't get overwhelmed by everything you have to get done in something like one trip around the sun. That can be an arbitrary and, and, and too short of a constraint. But if you, if you apply this kind of pressure to yourself over a period of several years or something like a decade, like you said, Elliot, I mean, it's astounding how much you can learn over five years or over 10 years and how much progress you can make in a skill or a knowledge base or something like that. And then secondarily, I mean, the, the whole concept of move fast and break things. I mean, look, I've, I've tried to make somewhat of a rule, not, not hard and fast, but pretty close to not criticize by name um, on this podcast. But I, you know, you're obviously referring to, to Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook because he said that many times. And look, I'm a huge critic of the company uh, in, in a lot of ways. And I think this is very symptomatic of a lot of what's wrong with that company. And, and someone, again, I don't even remember who I should attribute this quote to said, but it was something along the lines of, you know, this is what happens. You, this result with, with Zuckerberg and Facebook is what you get when you replace civics with computer science. And I think that's that hits exactly on this whole concept, right? Which is that that company and that organization has no sense of uh, the leadership that you just described that Jack Dorsey or, or plenty of other people have, have exhibited, in my opinion, and where there's just a complete and utter lack of the wrong kind of empowerment, the wrong kind of or there, there is a lack of the right kind of empowerment and, and a right, the right kind of decentralization, the right kind of culture and ethos that, that permeate the whole organization. Because, look, I, I understand the, the, the motive of it, move fast and break things, because, you know, we're edgy and we're disruptive and we're tech guys and we're smart and we're young and the world is changing rapidly around us. That's all completely and totally valid. But like you said, Elliot, I mean, a, along the way, the, a lot of the things you're breaking are things that you actually need and things that are actually useful. And, and you're probably creating a lot of really unnecessary havoc, both in your own, own organization and in the broader society. And there's like a time and a place where that may or may not be the best strategy for a given company. But overall, you know, for most businesses, it's definitely not the right approach to take. Like you can't treat everything um, as a commodity that you just ingest and spit out um, for the benefit of only shareholders. Like I think, you know, as I've tried to narrow my universe of companies that intrigue me and are worth my attention, um, you know, I <clears throat> I know with ESG, certain things tend to be popular, but I don't think of this from an ESG framework per se. You know, I think of it in business fundamentals, but the best businesses to me really stand out for how they don't think that way in a lot of in a lot of respects. How uh, they approach, you know, <clears throat> every little thing is really important, and how they, you know, really don't want to break things because there are consequences. And um, you know, who deals with those consequences is also an important question. Um, which of your stakeholders are you willing to kind of push consequences on? I don't know. I mean. Definitely, I, I, this idea of treating your employees above other stakeholders 
from Danny Meyer, you don't hear about too often in a lot of different companies. Um, but it's so unique. It's so different. And obviously in hospitality, it has a little different role because that's like the face of your business, the face of your brand. But yeah, I mean, Kaizen is not about, uh, consumer facing businesses per se, right? Toyota is one of the ultimate companies on that front. And, you know, it was about how to build cars, the most lean, efficient, uh, and best way. And those cars tended to last, tend still to this day, much longer than the cars that are not built with such a process. Um, so I find that very interesting. And I do think the relevance is well beyond what might on its face appear to be the case. And speaking of like on its face, Phil, just like you, like, you know, this book was written in 2006. I was told to read it many times along the way. I had even more recently been like, you know, why might something written 15 years ago still per se be relevant, uh, uh, you know, about business right now in this moment? And obviously certain things are timeless, but, you know, I always wonder if someone who wrote a book at the time they were trying to kind of broaden their own brand personally, whether it's, you know, kind of timeless in that sense. And it is, it's really interesting. I'm so th thankful Palmetto gave me the push to actually read it. Um, and it's one of those things that as I read it, I like find myself constantly obsessing over. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd say go, go get it. Well, I think any book that can stand the test of time is the number one test of whether it's any good, right? So I think a book that, you know, can come out and be bright, shiny object for one year and land on a bunch of bestseller list is great. And that's super impressive. But I often let those books sit there for a year or two and kind of see how they evolve, right? I mean, that we can all point to plenty of books that were all the rage, particularly in business at a certain period. And then after two or three or five years, it's like, wait a minute, every one of these examples is terrible. <laughs> the concepts didn't really, didn't really hold up. And so, you know, whether it's a great work of literature or a business book or something like that. I mean, you know, I often go back through and, and find that, and I actually started this effort some years ago where I, I picked like my top 10, somewhat arbitrary, but top 10 favorite books and went back and reread them. And then a lot of times I was rereading them for the third or fourth time. And I learned more from rereading those super awesome books than I did from, you know, even the bestsellers of that current year. So I think there's something to be said big time in favor of these books that have really stood up for a decade or more. Yeah. Well, I guess uh, we're not reading Jack Welsh's way of growing EPS <laughs> anymore. Um, it's pretty astounding, move, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Phil, let's move on to your uh, topic for the week. Sure. So this is a little bit of a change, but it's, it's similar to what we've talked about in a couple of regards in the past. So um, I, I came across this this week in a, in a couple of things that I was reading. Um, and it's a, it's kind of a, a useful valuation shortcut that, that it's been useful for me over the years. And it, it pertains to the concept of duration. So I think we've talked about duration in the past, but for anyone who hasn't listened to that or anyone who's totally new to the topic, it's a fixed income concept, uh, which is a weighted average period, at least the Macaulay duration that I'm referring to, which is a weighted average period of time, usually in years of how long you'd, you'd have to wait to get the bonds repayment and cash flows, right? So think of it as kind of like the tipping point. And it's a measure of interest rate sensitivity as well. Um, but, you know, you could think about a bond that that is issued and then one second later immediately refinanced and repaid. So you get everything back right away. That would be a duration of zero. Or you could think about a zero coupon bond where you get nothing until maturity 
And the duration of that bond would be whatever the maturity is, you know, five years, 10 years, 25 years, whatever it is. Um, so I, I, that to me has always been a really interesting concept, right? I mean, the more duration you're taking, by definition, the more risk you're taking in a sense, because the future is uncertain, right? None of us can predict with, with perfect accuracy or even any semblance of accuracy what the future can hold what the future holds. So one thing I've always liked to think about is this concept of equity duration and the same concept, right? I mean, like we, we've definitely talked about, you know, a bond-like mentality to valuing equities, which has some utility, right? It certainly doesn't pertain too much to, you know, high growth, venture capital style investments, speculative investments. It has lots of limitations, right? And it can really limit you if it curtails your imagination and locks you into too narrow of a framework, but I think it can also be just a really good common sense check on where things stand. So one way that I like to kind of modify this is to just figure out how long do I have to wait until I get roughly half the value of my investment back in present valued cash flows? So how many years would it take to recoup roughly half of whatever I'm buying today? So, I, you know, again, we've talked a lot about business first investing. That's certainly how I do it. I don't really care what the stock price is per se. That can get pretty silly and arbitrary. I really go look at the entire enterprise value and the entire equity market cap. So in doing that, I mean, you, you get to some pretty big numbers that can kind of reframe the debate for yourself a little bit more than the stock price. You know, the stock price is X, but the market cap is a trillion dollars. You know, it doesn't really matter so much if we're talking about a hundred bucks in the stock price, if it's a trillion dollar market cap, right? So that, that sort of thing. So anyway, I put together some hypothetical examples to run by you guys. Um, and again, it, the devil is in the details here. So you, you you have to, you can debate these assumptions for sure, right? These are not written in stone. They they don't, they also don't account for, um, you know, capital structure. They don't account for if there's some sort of hidden asset value play. Um, I used a 6% discount rate just for argument's sake, because I think that's a relatively decent long-term historical rate for an equity market. Um, it's not the discount rate that I use personally all the time, and it's not one that I'm recommending. I just sort of picked it as one that would be the least objectionable. And, and obviously, you can you can play around with the coupons, right? The, the cash flows you're getting as the equity owner a lot. That is absolutely the trick. Um, it, it, we'll see, though, it's not quite as sensitive as you might think. Um, and, and by the way, this also leaves half of the present value that you're paying. Today's market cap leaves half of the value beyond this point right? This sort of arbitrary line in the sand they were drawing. So anyway, I took, you know, at least I wouldn't go beyond 15 years. Like if it took 15 years, I just jacked up the growth rate just to show how kind of crazy life gets. And I took a handful of companies. These are all companies that I do not own. I don't short anything either. So I literally don't have a horse in this race at all um, just to use them purely for an illustration, right? So there, there's no implicit good or bad to be said here. It's just a, a purely thought-provoking hypothetical exercise. So if I took uh, the first one that just popped up, these were just companies that were randomly in the news or on the screen in the past few days. Charter Communications, very well-run company. Current market cap's about $138 billion. Uh, and, and I used, by the way, for the, at least the first three to five years, however much was available, I used the what I deem to be the best measure of owner earnings and free cash flow that's actually available to the owner of the equity, right? So this also gets into some complications where if you don't, you obviously don't really control it and the company can screw it up or they can make beautiful new investments with it. You know, none of that is really captured. These are truly just excess 
cash flows available to the residual, which is what the with what the equity actually is. So between now and uh, 2025, FactSet has cash flow, free cash flow to the equity going from a little over $8 billion to a little over $10 billion. So growing kind of a mid-single-digit rate. And then beyond that point, I actually just cut it off and had cash flow dead flat at $10 billion for the next four years. And so it actually only takes nine years to get back half of your present value of, of today's market cap of $138 billion back. Right? So you'd get almost $70 billion back by 2029 at these assumptions. And that that incorporates a 2% compound annual growth rate in the free cash flow from today, right? A little over 8 billion to a little over 10 billion. So nine years, like that's that's actually pretty good. I mean, I, you know, again, this is not an investment recommendation. I don't own it by any stretch, but I generally like to look for companies that I can understand where I get half of the present value of cash flows back in the first five to 10 years. Just because beyond 10 years, the world is so uncertain. It's so hard to predict. It leaves so much on the table. Again, I violate that rule all the time for companies that I think are truly exceptional, truly have that growth potential, et cetera. But it, it's just an interesting thought. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, a little bit bigger than Charter is Netflix. The, the, the market cap today is $250 billion. Here again, this is a company that's defied a lot of people's expectations, mine included. It's been a phenomenal success. It's exceptionally well run. They're very thoughtful about everything they do. I've talked about this a lot. I'm, I'm hugely impressed with a lot of the things Netflix has done. But let's look at the actual cash flows. So this year, maybe not so much in the way of actual excess free cash flow. The, the sell side consensus, again, giant asterisk there, goes up to a billion next year, three and a quarter billion the year after that, all the way up to nine and a half billion uh, by the end of 2025. So from, from zero to almost 10 billion in five years, it's quite a bit of growth. And then from there, I had to ramp it up 25%, 15%, and then basically 10% all the way through 2035. So that's a pretty massive compound annual growth rate. I mean, it would literally break the calculator because we're starting at zero. But point remains that you know you have to put in some exceptionally high growth rates, right? I mean, you're talking about free cash flow compounding at at least a high teens, low 20s kind of rate for 15 years just to get back half of your present value of current cap, of the current market cap, right? So a little bit stretched. I mean, maybe not stretched, who knows? I mean, again, I'm not making any judgment calls here. I'm just pointing out the math. Uh, Peloton, you know, it wouldn't be a podcast without talking about Peloton. Um, $41.5 billion market cap roughly today. I mean, here again, you're not getting back anywhere close to half of your present value of, of the current market cap inside of 15 years without some pretty massive assumptions, right? So you're talking about maybe 400 million of free cash this year, if things go well, the sell side has it going all the way, has it more than tripling over the next five years. And then from there, you'd have to compound it from that starting point, at least 14% a year through the end of 2035 to get back half of what you have. At the far end of the other side of the spectrum, uh, I picked Verizon just because we, we all saw that, that Berkshire made an investment there. Interesting in, in some regards, right? And this was the shortest one um, in the bunch. It's only six years to get back half of your of your investment. So, and that's with a very modest three percent compound annual growth rate in the free cash flow. So, a little under twenty billion this year, a little over twenty billion next year, going up to about twenty three billion by the end of twenty twenty six. That gets you back over a hundred and hundred and twelve billion. 113 billion against a market cap of 225. So pretty, pretty interesting, pretty impressive. Microsoft, another you know, tech giant, um, 
you know, you can actually see a pretty clear path there, even though the market cap is a trillion seven um, with only 7% growth in the free cash flows through 2034. So that's 14 years of free cash flow. You can get over $865 billion of present value of cash flow out of that company. Um, is 7% the right compound annual growth rate in those free cash flows? I don't know. Um, you know, that's that's a lot of cash. I mean, by the end of 2034, you're talking about $141 billion of future value of cash flows coming out of that company. So uh, pretty astounding numbers, but that that's completely plausible. I mean, that, that could very well happen. Um, and then just to stir the hornet's nest to end on, I, I did throw Twitter in there because I knew that would get Elliot to, to perk up and pay attention because he's probably fallen asleep by now. But um, it looks like, and again, this is where he would potentially have a much different view of the actual cash flows, um, but maybe something on the order of uh, $500 million of cash flow this year, free cash flow. Uh, the sell side has that going to well over $2 billion by the end of 2025, when most analysts stop publishing those, those numbers, at least, according to fact, fact set. And there again, they'd have to grow it at about a 14% compound annual growth rate from that starting point. So over the life of this 15-year little experiment, that's a 21% compound annual growth rate in the free cash flows just to get back half, right? So to get back about $30 billion of present value cash flows against a market cap of a little over 61 um, so anyway, you know, look, I don't, I, I, there's some danger in doing this, right? It can, it can shut your mind off to bigger and better explanations of what the future could hold. Um, it could, it could kind of lock you into being almost too risk averse, but at the same time, there are lots of companies that I didn't include in here because obviously the math wouldn't be helpful that don't generate any cash and, and may never generate any cash. So you're really by definition holding a zero coupon bond where the only possibility you have of, of not just getting out, but getting anything is to get refinanced out. And in the equity market, that means somebody else paying you at what you paid plus a premium or, you know, an M&A event or something like that. So you really do need to ask yourself in a lot of these situations, how many zero coupon equity bonds am I really comfortable owning? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's tough. Um, you know, and, and it, it just points out like if, if these, numbers really have to pile up in a massive way. You have to be really comfortable that this business is is amassing that value at a really high rate that exceeds, you know, your your own discount value, whatever the, the discount value is you're using. Um, it, it's not a definitive valuation by any stretch. You know, we're not actually laying out the precise cash flows and, and trying to figure it out, but it's a very good expectations analysis, right? To kind of reverse engineer what the expectations are in the stock, right? So if you can make a credible case that, that Microsoft, even though it's a trillion seven and that's a big giant number, but you're like, no, wait a minute, these these cash flows, you know, starting from 50 or 60 billion, like they're gonna grow way faster than 7%, then you could actually make a lot of money on the basis of that, right? But, you know, th this is the kind of math I think is a really good, helpful check on the process. So what do you guys think? Is this overdone or is it useful? Oh, I think it's incredibly useful. I think it's something really important to think about, you know, in every one of my models, uh, First off, like what you're talking about is much akin to a reverse engineered DCF, um, just sensitizing for a different variable than, you know, necessarily starting with each of the KPIs. And, you know, I think to an extent, it tells you uh, the margin of safety if you're wrong, because you're focusing a lot on what the cash flows are. And that's the one kind of single source of truth that you do have as an owner of stock, right? Um, at some point, a company that 
even if they choose to generate zero free cash flow and invest, they could be a little more beholden to the market's estimation of duration. So you think about that right now in this very moment. And what we're seeing as interest rates rise over the course of the last uh, month and a half are longer duration equities. And those equities valued specifically as interest rate proxies. Here I'm thinking of stuff like the towers and the data center companies. Um, you know, they really get hit uh, alongside a rise in interest rates. And so, you know, I mean, I think it's something important to think about both in terms of what factors you're exposed to and your margin of safety in a given security. So obviously I have to talk about Twitter, right? <laughs> Twitter is a different beast. I'd, I threw that in there for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> right? I'd love to know exactly which day you picked the estimates for. Um, you know, did you do uh, well, it I pulled them, yeah, yeah, I pulled them. Yeah, I pulled them down off of FactSet last night. So again, like you can... And again, I, I'm. This is where this experiment is only so useful, right? I mean, you, you really could sit here and play around with these numbers when you actually know the company, and it would make a meaningful difference. Now, uh, I'll do this, right? So I started at about a half a billion dollars of actual free cash flow for 2021, going up to two billion. Let's double it, right? Let's start with a billion and go up. You know, we'll go up to. Go up to three billion. I mean, it, it does make it adds like twenty two percentage points of what you'd get back, right? So it would cut the time you'd need by five years, call it. And just um, to so be clear, in free cash flow, are you adding then, back stock based comp, or are you not in this case, right? Yeah, an, another another great clarification. I don't know. It's whatever was because I'm not a, a Twitter analyst. Okay, so the I'm, consensus in there definitely would be adding back. Uh, stock-based comp, but I think that number is decently light of what reality will be. Okay. Um, so yeah, and you know that's an opportunity to to kind of when you're more informed about the stock or have a variant perception. Exactly. Um, right. Our, uh, I'd, I'd say a big part of why I asked you which day you took the estimates from is just before the Twitter analyst day. Um, you know, the average analyst was way below um, where Twitter uh, guided to for the next couple of years. Sure. And, so you and know, I've I'm, seen that I've seen that happen a ton too. Like the, the the company that I've been the single biggest investment in my fund for five years. Like it's almost like clockwork. Every year, in the fourth quarter, the sell side estimate for free cash flow is still below what they've already posted for the first mm -hmm. three quarters of the year, yeah. and they're they're profitable and free cash flow positive every quarter. So it's like you know, it, I, so these numbers are hugely flawed. It's truly just you know, this is a framework to play around with and and. You know, 100%. So where I was inevitably going with it is, right, like you've already seen the estimates marked up meaningfully over the last week. But I think, you know, because they are Twitter and no one wants to give them the benefit of the doubt, the average analyst is sitting below where, you know, they've said their reality, reality would shake out. And then, you know, I did a spaces the other night with a bunch of Twitter bulls. So if you want some like confirmation bias, that's what it was in a lot of ways. But effectively, you know, I asked this question, is there uh, framework aspirational or achievable. And depending on what you believe, obviously the analysts are viewing it as uh, aspirational. I view it highly achievable. I actually didn't even have to change my numbers at all to get to that framework. And so where I'm going with this is, I, I just quickly pulled up my model while you, while you were talking about it. Um, over the next eight years, I think the PV of the free cash flow is going to cover about 33% of their market cap. So I'm, I'm discounting how long? those. Uh, eight years. Yeah. So yeah, look, that, that was exactly what I was talking about earlier, which is like, I like to think about, 
you know, those sorts of figures, right? Okay, if, if I can cover a third or a half over five to 10 years, that's a really strong anchor, at least in my book, for, you know, the kind of certainty that I like to see in the world. And you're summing free cash flows, right? You're not discounting oh, yeah. them. So, you know, here, like covering a third in, in a discounted way, I think. No, that... no, I'm, these are all discounted. I mean, I, I applied a 6% discount rate. To all oh, these. got it, got it. Yeah, I'm using 10 here, but that's. Yeah, know, so look, in my, I would use, that's why I said I would use a different uh, number for my own purposes. I, I I use six because I think some people would view 10 as being overly punitive, but I'm with yeah. you 100%. Yeah, I love that concept. I mean, the riff I would have off it is like, you know, when you look at a company like Verizon and you see how much free cash flow will cover their market cap over the next few years, the problem a company like that has is, you know, very small changes in their operating model. And, and you know, it, it, it could have extreme valuation changes. In contrast, I think the growthier companies, small changes in you know, their growth as opposed to their operating model will have, you know, it's going to be sure. extremely sensitive. Um, and which one do you think is more believable or achievable? Like it's one kind of risk for another. Um, man, you know, Verizon makes another bad acquisition. There goes a lot of uh, market cap. Um, so, you know, I, I really do like the the concept that you said about half of PV back within the first 10 years. It's just a really good way to think about like, you know, if you have a long-term holding period, you're willing to see it through. If it yep. goes wrong, like what's the what's the least you could expect to be there for sure? Um, yeah, and, and Verizon's a, Verizon's a good one, right? Because I, I I did put that in intentionally as like an old stuffy dinosaur that um, you know obviously lots can go wrong. And I mean, uh, you know, to to start with the obvious, right? I mean, with any company that has both operating and financial leverage. You know, it's a double edged it's a double edged sword. And so great, just because there's a lot of cash flow today. I mean, we've seen that play out. And, and this is where the whole And I had extremely capital intensive, right? Yeah, very capital intensive, right? So this is where the old value versus growth debate gets really stupid because just because Verizon's pumping out a lot of cash today, and if the if the world stays as we so called expect it to today. You get everything, you get half the market cap back in six years. That sounds great, but there's lots that can go wrong there. And what the market is telling you is that they're nervous about it relative to Microsoft, right? And so that's where you have to come in as an analyst and say, no, I'm relatively comfortable with what Verizon's got going on for the next five or 10 years. And, and I think these cash flows are actually going to materialize. But yeah, look, there, I hate the term value trap too, but something that has optical appeal in that sense can often be the worst investment. So it's just, I think it's helpful to compare and contrast the two, right? And say, which which bet am I more comfortable with? You know, the the creaky old bond with a relatively high current yield and a, and a decent credit rating, but not bulletproof or the, you know, zero coupon, non-investment grade, high flyer, right? I mean, and there's something for everybody. You just have to actually take the time to actually think through that analysis. Yep, absolutely. Going from a 15 PE to a 10 PE is the same thing as a 30 to a 20, right? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so the cheap stuff, they, they're similarly sensitive. It's interesting to think that, you know, uh, I, I think Microsoft is such a perfect example of where this market is today because they are just spitting off free cash flow. They're growing. And, you know, I feel like they slipped through the cracks. Like, if yeah. you think about what the market's done, you know, from July to November, anything growthy absolutely flew. 
maybe even you could say from from July through through January, growthy stuff flew. And from November through now, value stuff's absolutely flown. And Microsoft's largely been spinning its tires uh, because it doesn't neatly fall into either of these factor buckets. And I do think, you know, increasingly, when I think of duration and equity too, I, I, I think a lot about the factors that are driving things. And, you know, especially in this moment where you see like a big unwind of the growth factor, um, you know, each day I like pulling up on Coifin, the factor screen, and you can see exactly what's happening. You know, so far as we're speaking, just uh, in, in the last week, like the momentum factor is down 10%, but the small cap value factor is up upwards of 10%. And so, you know, these kinds of weird quirks uh, and moments where, you know, the, the pendulum swings from one to the other really matter a lot. And I love paying attention to which ones it doesn't matter to. Um, oh, yeah, so, exactly. you know, something like Microsoft, right? It, it just doesn't matter. It's not part of this factor market. Um, but that's just, you know, one, one of the frameworks I like thinking about duration through. I am paying attention to some of these like equities that trade as duration stubs, uh, like Equinix and Ameritower, like really interesting business models that right now are kind of in the eye of the uh, duration storm that we're experiencing. Yep. Agreed. Yeah, I'll jump. I'll jump in. Just um, I, I. I don't know if to what a, to what degree the FCF um, numbers um, kind of include growth capex. Um, Phil, they should. They should include it. But you know, again, this is where you have to be the actual analyst, right? And why the numbers on the screen can be totally meaningless because if that growth capex is creating more than a dollar of value. It shouldn't be valued at a dollar, or if it's destroying value, right? Or, or if it's only going to last two or three years, and then free cash was going to explode. I mean, all those things. And again, so that's why the the numbers, the inputs, are very flawed by admission here. Yeah, because I think you know, in fairness to Netflix or something like a Naked Wines, if a company is electing to invest in what they know to be, um, you know, very high positive, high return um, projects. Then um, you know the the reported FCF may not be as relevant. So that concept of how quickly you get all your money back doesn't totally. apply as much because they're just choosing to to not give you that money back. They're choosing to reinvest it in the business. Um, and just one thing that I kind of struggle with, or that's part of my thought process, when you have something like a Verizon or let's say an oil and gas company. Um, that on paper would get you that money back quickly. Um, if it's a situation where you actually could not reinvest that money in the same company because at some point it it dies, um, then it's kind of a tricky one. You know, if you think of let's say the Saudis running off their oil fields. If they just keep reinvesting into that, um, they're going to be left with nothing at some point. You know, the only way that works is if you kind of take that money that you get from these cash cows and reinvest it into something that's going to actually grow uh, cash flow over time. But then the question is like, why? Why do that in the first place? Why not just invest in those companies? To begin with, um, they're going to grow free cash flow. And do you know at what valuation you'll get to buy into those growing free cash flows when the cash cow gives you its uh, coupons? So it's a tough one, but um, 
you know, that, that concept of value trap is kind of ever present uh, when you've got companies where they may not be around, um, but they're throwing off a ton of cash flow right now. Yeah, look, it raises a great point. I mean, if you're running off your most valuable cash cow that doesn't have reinvestment opportunities and you put it all into WeWork and Greensill via the Vision Fund, it's not going to work real well for you. So, um, and look, I mean, Elliot raised a very valid point too about Verizon specifically, right? I mean, it, there's a lot of cash flow that's going to come out of this thing in the next few years. And what they do with it is going to be enormously important, right? I mean, this is why capital allocation and corporate governance really matter. Because for a company like this in particular, I mean, the the board and the management team are going to oversee an enormous percentage of the total capital employed in this business is going to be decided on over the next five and 10 years. And, you know, they could do well with it or they could do poorly with it. And, you know, human temptation in big organizations like this is such that, uh, you know, you don't always get a great result, unfortunately. So I, I'm very leery of those types of situations where I don't have a lot of faith in who's calling the shots. Um, and to your point, John, I mean, look, I think that's what's been so interesting about the development of the markets. I mean, I love this concept that like the public markets, it, it, it's faded in the past year or two. It doesn't seem to get as much attention, but this concept that like, oh, you can't go public because the markets are too short-term oriented and yet you have all these amazing companies like Netflix and Amazon that intentionally reinvested and and, and didn't flatter their, their optics, right? So they, they made the long-term bet by reinvesting in the company at the expense of showing current earnings and cash flow. And of course, it paid off enormously for them, right? And, and you mentioned a company like Naked Wines, and, and that's exactly it. I mean, if you have a project where you know that the lifetime value of that project is higher than what you're having to pay in present value, of course you do that. And that actually is the best possible thing for a lot of management teams because it takes broader questions of capital allocation out of the picture. Right? They don't have to deal with it, right? They know this is their business. They know they're good at their business and they just keep doing it. And that's that's a beautiful thing. I mean, it just, again, I think the only balancing act you have to trade there is because that's worked so well, um, I've seen a lot of companies at least, and not any of the ones we've mentioned today, but where they calculate the lifetime value of, let's call it their customer. And it's just total nonsense, right? I mean, it's just total garbage. And that's there's, so there's, true. Just, <laughs> there's just no chance of ever recouping those numbers. And so you just have to be careful as to who's real and who's not. And the ones that are real and the ones that can say, I'm going to defer gratification here, so to speak, and I'm going to reinvest in the five and 10 year life of this customer relationship. God bless. That is a wonderful thing and a powerful business model. You just have to watch out for the pretenders. Yeah, but I want to tie, I do think with the real ones, you could tie it back to a lot of what we're talking about. So like Naked Wines, for example, I'm glad you mentioned that, John. They are, you know, obviously trying not to make money right now, right? They're investing the the actual earnings in the business, though they're not actual earnings. They're not reported as such because the investment comes through, you know, uh, sales and marketing, acquiring new customers. And when you think about that, there is a way where if you know and understand the unit economics of the business and you could figure out uh, to what extent they are reinvesting in growth as opposed to, you know, maintaining their existing customer base, you could add up like how much cash flow they'll be reinvesting over the course of 10 years, just as you suggested, Phil, right? So you could think, in present value terms on what they're reinvesting. And then, you know, thinking about Buffett's retained earnings test, obviously, you know, I'm not talking about retained earnings in the balance sheet sense, but the retained earnings in the sense of what they are reinvesting, whether they're truly achieving, you know, ROI that's above your hurdle rate. Um, So, you know, I think all these concepts do tie together. There are ways that growth, your investors could kind of deploy this 
um, you should have a sense of you know how much is investment versus how much is actual opex to support the business. Um, and then you know you could really apply the uh, present value test in in that way. Exactly. Okay, great. Well, thanks, guys, for another fascinating discussion. And thank you all for listening. We appreciate you being with us uh, from week to week. Take care for now. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.